Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Hey there, internet radio waves. This is Amanda Dell. And Kimberly Chow. And you're listening to Recommended Reading with Food Book Fair on Heritage Radio Network. Food Book Fair is an annual food media festival held here in New York and also possibly coming to a city near you. We're also the hosts of Recommended Reading, where we get to chat with our friends and collaborators about what they're reading, watching, or listening to, and what they're up to. Today, we're really excited to be joined in the studio for a special pre-recorded episode with the amazing team behind The Sioux Chef. That's S-I-O-U-X, an amazing organization and the authors of a brand new cookbook, The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, all about indigenous food ways and food practices and the people that are involved in that good work right now. That's Chef Sean Sherman and his partner in all things Sioux Chef, Dana Thompson, joining us today. So we'll be talking to them in a bit about the work that they're doing, what they're reading, watching, and listening to. But first, Amanda, what are you reading these days or listening to? Yeah, Um, I was super fortunate to have a couple minutes to get to read the New York Times this morning. Um, I'm still trying to get there from yesterday's copy. I know. It's a real big pleasure of like Sunday morning to get to read that. I had to pick and choose this morning because I had a pretty short window, but my fir- my always go-to when I read the paper on Sunday is a column called Sunday Routine. 
It's in the style section, and it profiles a notable New Yorker. It's in the metro section. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. It's so stylish. I think it should be in style, but it's in metro. Wait a second. I have to fact check myself. Yeah, I don't know. Ooh, I'm going to fact check my work wife on this one. It's either in metro or style (laughs) or New York. We're on the internet. (laughs) Um, And it is, whether I'm reading in print or online, I must check out Sunday Routine. It profiles a notable New Yorker and how they spend their Sunday hashtag Sunday routine. Um, they always find really fascinating people from like choir directors to actors, uh, directors of museums. And so I, uh, flip open the page and today who do I see our food book fair 2017 friend and collaborator, Yadon Israel getting profiled about what he does on his Sunday. He is a founder of hashtag literary swag. That's a, that's a hash phrase that he coined which and a lifestyle (laughs) which he discusses in Sunday Routine Um, and it's an amazing book club um, which we've had the privilege to attend and he and he did a version of it at Food Book Fair Um, it also came with a very big announcement that he is going to be the editor of Brooklyn Magazine Mm -hmm. editor in chief Um, and also the editorial director of Northside Media Group Huge, the parent like company of that. Major, major props to our friend Yadon. Also, props to Northside because uh, Yadon has some of the best taste and smarts of anyone we know. So yeah. So y'all, I mean, the, y'all are fortunate. This Sunday routine was like about his morning, like fry up. It was about how he shops. Like I really enjoyed getting into his world. So that was such a pleasure to uh, open up the page and, and see him there. So couldn't be more proud. Also, one of the more stylish Sunday routines I've seen in a Without while. Without a doubt. Maybe that's why I was so fixated on it being in the style section. <laughs> He's also been a past guest on uh, yeah. Recommended Reading. Oh, yes. You can find his episode from our last season where he and Kim Jenkins, a great friend and a professor of fashion and race, and I talked about fashion, race, literature, um, being lit, all sorts yeah. of stuff. And um, we hope that we get to see more of Yadon's voice and that he can bring together a really great group of contributors to uh, his new job. So, Word. congrats. Um, and then the one other thing that I, I can't believe I've never talked about this on recommended reading that I love and I got into a deep hole with uh, was this NVR podcast called How, called How I Built This with Guy Raz. Um, He interviews founders about how they got to their project, how they got to complete their project or how they started their business. And it's ultra fascinating because so many of them uh, like sometimes when you think about people that have huge businesses, um, what kind of like like how huge are we talking about? Like Stonyfield yogurt, or like he also interviewed like the founder of Bumble, the dating app or uh, the people who started um, Warby Parker. Mm-hmm. And those people are an exception because they actually did meet in business school. But a lot of the people that he has on the show, like they, they actually don't have the background and they don't even really, they always are the first ones to admit, like I, di- I didn't have a, the business acumen. Like it wasn't something that I knew. Maybe I knew how to be an entrepreneur. Maybe I had this skill set to draw on. But it never, the people never start out by saying like the Stonyville yogurt people. They weren't like, I, w- I woke up and I knew I was going to make yogurt. Like, it's just, it's never their path, and, and that's really what makes the show ultimately interesting. So please, when you're done listening to all the back episodes of Recommended <laughs> Reading, please go listen to How I Built This This also NPR. means that there's a chance that either of us can still start a <laughs> multi-billion dollar dairy company. We can dream, definitely. So um, 
what are you reading, watching, or listening to? Um, I'm saving the Weekend Magazine, the New York Times Magazine, Ooh. which is uh, all about hosting parties, about dinner parties. It is? Yeah, it is. Um, and it has contributions from all the columnists, including Gabrielle Hamilton, whose writing I love, and Tejal Rao, whose writing I really, really love. Wow. Uh, Tejal's uh, section is about throwing a fondue party. Dairy um, again. Dairy's trend. Are we trending on dairy? I know. Just as I'm trying to cut back on yeah. eating dairy, as my um, East Asian genes are telling me that it's time that there's a reason that 91% of us ordinarily can't process it. Um, but Angel, Angel has this um, fondue party story. There's a bunch of other stuff in there that I can't wait to dig into because it's perfect. It's raining really hard out here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. For those that are listening to us at some later time, hopefully with better <laughs> weather, uh, it's a perfect curl-up kind of thing. And I love hearing about how other people eat and how they um, bring other people together to eat. And also planning uh, a dream dinner party. There's also dream dinner party guest lists, including Alice Waters' choices and some other folks as well. So that's that's on my bedside table, literally. Wow. Which is actually just a crate, but it <laughs> functions as well. But I hope we get to be on someone's list soon. Hope so. Well, without further ado, I think it is time to officially welcome to the Heritage Radio booth dance floor our guests for today. We are joined by Dana Thompson and Sean Sherman. They are the co-owners of The Sous Chef. So welcome. Thank you so much. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So glad to have you here. We were really happy to do a book signing where we sold many, many copies of The Sous Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. Uh, in Union Square Green Market with the folks we collaborate with at Grow NYC and Books on Call, and also sampled some really beautiful Mohawk red corn, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. With heirloom brown beans, pawpaw, uh, corn shoots, pea shoots, hyssop, lots of beautiful stuff there. I think people were really happy with that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and in your own words, would love uh, each of you to to you know talk a little bit about the mission of the sous chef and and. Um, also, let us know, you know, how we can learn more about it aside from the book and, and really what what the intentions are and how you're going about them. For sure. We'd love to. Great. So um, I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. So I'm a member of the Ogallala Lakota Sioux tribe. And I became a chef pretty young in Minneapolis. And we're still based in Minneapolis today. I started cooking at a very young age, uh, mostly out of necessity because we grew up pretty poor. Mm -hmm. And I started working in restaurants as soon as I was 13. Mm. And I worked through tourist restaurants in the Black Hills and then all through high school and college. And then after college, moving to Minneapolis, I just kind of shot my way up into a chef position um, after having, you know, many years of restaurant experience already. So a few years into my chef career, and we're learning all sorts of great cuisines from around the world and working really closely with local organic and, you know, reaching out to the vendors that were around us in the Minnesota region, I kind of hit this moment where I realized um, something was missing, which was the food of my heritage. Mm. Um, Because, you know, we could walk around the city and find food from all over the world within a few blocks and nothing that represented the people and the place there. So it kind of shot me off on the journey that we're on now, which is really trying to understand indigenous food systems. There's a really, I mean, it's it's written and, and threaded throughout the book. There's such a beautiful introduction in the, the cookbook about how you came to where you are. And, I, and we also know that you guys recently started a nonprofit, right, to sort of 
um, further the message, not just in the, the cooking and the speaking and the book, but through empowering other people to do that as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Good. Well, uh, we have a nonprofit called Natives. Um, the acronym is North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. And you can look at that up on the web at natives.org. And um, the sous chef is um, the beginning of sort of the process of creating a nonprofit to build food access back into Indian country. And um, we we have a lot of really grand plans, which Sean is definitely the spokesperson for, but uh, I would encourage everyone to look on, on the internet because it is a little bit um, difficult for people to understand because it hasn't really been done yet. Yeah, so part of what we've been doing is, you know, we've been a food business, number one, mm-hmm. and back home, really, all we are at the moment is just a catering business in Minneapolis. We had a food truck called Tatanka Truck that was very popular in Minneapolis, and we focus on indigenous-only food, so mm-hmm. pre-colonial food, so it's not pre-Columbian because it doesn't have anything to do with when Columbus showed up. We are looking at the culture of when they were influenced by a different culture um, at mm-hmm. that time period, but we're just taking all of that beautiful knowledge from the past, looking at what people were growing and mm-hmm. harvesting and looking at native agriculture and wild foods and food preservation and cooking techniques Mm -hmm. and utilizing all this knowledge to develop a modern sense of indigenous foods for today. So through the nonprofit, what we're really trying to do is impact a lot of communities because we see a lot of food illnesses out there. You know, in a community like mine on Pine Ridge, there's Mm -hmm. really poor statistics of health and it's all centered around food and the food access that's there. Mm -hmm. So we want to make a change because the best part about this indigenous food is the health aspect. Mm -hmm. And we feel like like, you know, a restaurant can be so influential for a community and getting that food access um, to those communities can be so impactful um, and carrying education around um, it by helping to develop curriculum around indigenous foods and mm-hmm. utilizing the cookbook that we just wrote to really showcase like over 100 recipes using only indigenous ingredients. Mm-hmm. So cutting out eurocentric ingredients so there's no dairy, no wheat flour, no processed sugar, mm-hmm. no beef, no pork, no chicken, and looking at the immense amount of diversity that we have throughout North America with indigenous cultures um, on top of a lot of the commonalities. So it's really just thinking that, you know, there's been thousands of years of trial and error when it comes to indigenous cultures of how to live within an ecosystem and be in balance. Um, And instead of, you know, just blindly being followed through with a Eurocentric ideology Mm -hmm. of how a food system should work because it's superior, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of insane. Like there's a lot of lessons we can learn from indigenous cultures. Um, I know this is a question that you get a lot and have talked about it in many different ways, but also as we talked about uh, while having a snack before this before this radio show, there's so much because of the Eurocentric learning that is inbuilt right. into this place that we call home. There's so much unlearning to be done. So there's so much and then relearning for people to do about the foods that are indigenous to this land. And can you talk a little bit about foods that some examples of foods are indigenous uh, and food practices in uh, the part of the Midwest that you're from? Um, So we have a pretty diverse uh, system all around us. So the food, the cookbook really focuses with a lot of foods from our region. So we use a lot of the true wild rice, which is the mm. hand-harvested wild rice that's out there in the Minnesota waters. And it's not like the black wild and rice that you find mm-hmm. in a pack of rice aroni or something like that. It's, you know, there's this beautiful spectrum of oranges and yellows and wow. reds and browns. And, you know, they're really light and delicate. They cook really fast. And it's just a staple for that region. Mm-hmm. But we also look at other 
things like uh, there's a wild turnip on the plains called Timsala that we mm-hmm. harvested a lot when we were young. Um, there's all sorts of different kinds of berries. I grew up with one called choke cherry, mm-hmm. and the smell of choke cherry always kind of zaps me back to being like three or four, you know, in my grandmother's kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just so much food around us, no matter where you are. So it's just like being reconnected to the plants of your mm-hmm. region. So the ethnobotany side of things is a really important knowledge. And for us, we've even hired ethnobotanists on our culinary team, which we think That's awesome. every every culinary team should have a botanist on board because we work with a lot of plants. Mm-hmm. And there's so much more plant diversification we could be adding to our diet through just knowledge of what's around us Mm. shout out to the ethnobotanists out there (laughs) and open-minded kitchens (laughs) absolutely when when we were speaking before we came on air sean you and i i I didn't quite catch the statistic but it really um was something that stuck with me so it was really talking about i think you know we as Americans have this idea of Native Americans, you know, living in the U.S. prior to colonization, prior to, you know, different groups settling in, in different areas. But it, it's very difficult for us or, you know, in our educational scope to, to understand just how, you know, how many um, different tribes there were and then really kind of how quickly they they were erased um and so i know you said the major the major time that 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 happened was from 1800 to 1900 right and and there was a percentage that you had mentioned earlier that was was kind of like mind-blowing to me we just look at you know indigenous history which Mm -hmm. is something that unfortunately isn't taught very well in our school systems so we have a very glossed over very mythological view of indigenous food or just indigenous culture sorry in general so, you know, just looking at history, you know, the Louisiana Purchase doesn't even happen until 1803. And at that point in time, a huge section of North America was under complete indigenous control. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but during that century from 1800 till 1900, you know, by the ni- early 1900s, there's only 1% of U.S. owned by indigenous communities, which was just the reservation systems at that point in time. And that all happens through executive orders and you know, all sorts of stuff, but a lot of land was lost. So today we're still lucky that we have a vibrant um, and diverse indigenous cultures all across North America. You know, there's still 567 tribes in the U.S., 634 in Canada. Mm. And Mexico is such a great example of indigenous um, peoples and foods because three out of ten people can still speak indigenous languages in Mexico. And you go to many of the villages all throughout Mexico, and it's just as diverse um, with indigenous cultures as it is in the U.S. and Canada. And you see a lot of food systems very much alive where people Mm -hmm. are still growing a lot of beautiful corns that have been, been grown there for thousands of years. And people are still doing a lot of old school ways. So when you look at Mexican cuisine, it's way more indigenous than it is French or Spanish because you're Mm -hmm. utilizing nixtamalized corn and bean and chilies and tropical fruit, insects and all sorts of stuff that those food systems have maintained for so long. Mm -hmm. Whereas the U.S. and Canada did a really thorough job of trying to wipe away the Mm -hmm. indigenous cultures and especially by stripping away their food systems first Mm -hmm. off. Can you talk about... Uh, and this is in the book as well. Can you talk about, it, we know you've spent some time in the Naya re- region and how that was part of your journey in getting to how you're telling your story now. Yeah, um, so Dane and I like to go down to Mexico every year. We're going to be down in Nayarit again in December. And the town of San Francisco, which is locally known as San Pancho, um, we go down there because it's just a beautiful little community. Um, And I had moved down there at a certain point in time and was down there for quite a while. I want to think around 2008, I want to say. 
And that's where I kind of had an epiphany to do the work that I'm really doing mm. now. It really like opened up my mind. And it was really because there was this indigenous group there called the Huichol. And the Huicholes were always on the beach selling their, their wares and their goods. And they're always in traditional dress. And I was just curious and was learning more about their culture. And all of a sudden I realized like I should be spending all my time and energy trying to figure out my own heritage food. Mm. Because I'd spent so much time learning about other cultures. You know, yeah. Japanese food right. and European foods mm -hmm. and African foods. Whatever I was interested in. And then it just made, then I realized I didn't know anything about my own heritage food. You know, just little snippets of it. Mm -hmm. And it shot me on a path. And I saw like the whole path just light up. Mm. Like I knew the studies that I needed. I knew I didn't know anything at that point. But I knew at least where to start. Mm -hmm. um, and ever since. I started on that path everything's been pulling me towards it it was just like you know I found this path and it's taking me down the road mm -hmm. wow so. and then in, in a fortuitous meeting somehow Dana you you actually s saw Sean cooking and speaking and then it you pretty much just approached him and knew that you wanted to get involved absolutely yeah I met Sean about a month after he started uh, the company and it was in Minnesota and um I believe he'd already had one article released through the Salt on National Public Radio. Is that right? Or was it all things considered? Time. It was all coming out about that same time. Yeah. So he started about a month before, and uh, a mutual friend of ours, Monica, has a company mm -hmm. in Minnesota called Dinner on the Farm, and they do amazing work with farm to table, and they pair a chef up with sometimes a local um, cider producer or something. And she had uh, a dinner, and it was the beginning of October, out in the middle of the northern suburbs of Minneapolis, and Sean was the chef. And I had known her um, from marketing and from the music business because I was a professional musician for a long time. And uh, one of my tour managers was in town. And so she invited us out there, and I got to see Sean start cooking, and, um, and then he spoke as he served the food, and there was only about maybe 30 or 40 people there just around a fire in the middle of a farm <laughs> and everyone's in their winter clothes. <laughs> and um, as he started talking about the concept behind the business and I was eating his food, I, I literally felt electric currents running through my mm. body and was just my heart. It felt, I like felt like I'd completely changed. And um, I said to him, you know, if you have a team already in place to build this, then I'm just your biggest fan. Mm -hmm. And if not, then here's what I think I can do to help. And so I took over kind of the marketing and the strategy and uh, basically Girl Friday for everything that he needed. <laughs> and, um, and then uh, we started working together and uh, then we got into a relationship probably about five, six months after that. So it was, it was pretty great. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we'll, uh, we'll be back very shortly to hear a little bit more about that. We have to take a quick break. Um, remember to head over to heritageradionetwork.org and click on that beating heart, become a member and support radio shows like this and all of the other amazing ones on Heritage Radio Network. And we'll be back very shortly with Dana Thompson and Sean Sherman of The Sous Chef. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com.
following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. Hello, Internet. We're back. This is Kimberly Chow. I'm Amanda Dell. We're the co-directors of Food Book Fair and the co-hosts of Recommended Reading on Heritage Radio Network. We're so glad to be here in the studio today with Chef Sean Sherman and Dana Thompson of The Sous Chef. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back. We were very excited to talk about the book, and um, I understand it's in its second printing, which is pretty unbelievable. Yeah, within the first, like, seven, ten days. Ten days, yeah. yeah. Ten days. Wow. Oh, I didn't know. Wow. That is unbelievable. It's super humbling, and (laughs) we're so grateful. Wow. So Uh, I think we have a lot of media people and a lot of bookworms that listen to the show. Um, (laughs) It being called Recommended Reading. Uh, But their book just came out right now. We're recording, and it's just before Halloween. And their book just came out through University of Minnesota Press. Mm -hmm. And it's in second printing, which means there's something like almost 20,000 copies in circulation right now, right? Yeah, Yeah, last time we heard it was 17,000. So... That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's the sous chef's indigenous kitchen. So definitely pick that up, order on Amazon, or get it from your local bookstore. And the idea behind the book was, I, as I understand, a couple of different you know things: getting to tell your story, getting to highlight local growers and producers, and native uh, fruits and vegetables, indigenous to certain areas, but also to be able to spread your work and um, be able to share with many different people. And I understand that that is happening. Right. Yeah, we really wanted to just have a um, you know a media that would help with. You know, spreading the philosophy behind mm-hmm. the work that we're doing, showcasing a lot of the recipes that we're doing, utilizing just indigenous ingredients um, with, you know, well over 100 recipes, lots of beautiful photos, um, and just lots of talks about these different pieces and mm-hmm. trying to open up people's minds a little bit. Because no matter where you are in North America, there's indigenous history because mm-hmm. all of the history of the Americas begins with indigenous histories. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, like I said, thousands of years of trial and error of yeah. things that have worked. And there's so many beautiful foods that set us aside and really make up our regions you know and we can be we could be much better identified um, through region by having an indigenous understanding of mm-hmm. how people utilize the foods and all the foods that are not around us naturally and you know being a part of that ecosystem and looking at simple really healthy techniques of foods mm-hmm. too instead of you know constantly having to do everything off of French technique or something mm-hmm. like that and it sounds like people are really responding to the book not just through sales numbers but from proof we've seen on the internet yes we've been getting tagged a lot and and having a lot of people actually practicing the recipes and showing their pictures on Instagram and Facebook, which is really cool. And that's really what we wanted because for the first year of the company, it was really obvious to me as, um, you know, a hilarious person that everything was (laughs) ironically foreign when John would talk about this. People would be like, this is like, what? I can't believe it. But we're like, no, this is the food of, like, what's right under your feet. Mm -hmm. And... It didn't. It didn't come across as that 
at first. And so this book is a really great tool so that people can really understand the fundamentals behind it. Yeah. At our, at our signing in Union Square, I learned about a North American fruit that I had never heard of called pawpaw. Right. And you said it's actually the largest fruit, indigenous fruit. It grows the, as the largest indigenous fruit in North America. Yeah, I think that's um, what it's titled as. I mean, I guess you can count squash as fruit, too. There's some really large squash oh, yeah. out there, right? Right. So, but it's a super cool fruit. I mean, it looks like a mango, and it just has this really weird flavor. And, you know, since we were doing that indigenous tasting of Manhattan at the James Beard House the other night, you know, we wanted to showcase all these cool flavors that are in this region. Um, and that's just one of the fruits that grows naturally in this area. And there's still people that are growing some. Mm-hmm. And there's still some out there in the wild, too. So it should be, you know, much more celebrated because it's a super cool yeah. Flavor. Yeah, and it's also like really high nutritional value, yeah. right? Of course. And there's also a great book about the history of pawpaw called Pawpaw that came out last year. <laughs> what? Where have I been? It Sleeping was... under a pawpaw rock? The, <laughs> the food book fair delivery got sent to me. I'll give you oh, my copy. Oh, wow. All right. And, wow. and yeah, amazing. And, you know, it must have also been fascinating to not only learn about indigenous foods in your, you know, in the Northwest or, you know, your, the area that, um, not Northwest, excuse me, Midwest. Midwest. Um, but, and then as you're, you know, planning the tour around your book and doing different events, getting to draw on, you know, other regions and their indigenous foods and, and talk to us, um, about what got you particularly excited, you know, coming to the Northeast. I know you did a dinner at the James Beard house. Yeah, well, we had a bunch of stuff going on. So yeah. Dana really did a lot of this planning oh, um, well. of all this routing that we have because this is just the beginning of it still. So we were yeah. at the CIA for a few days and, you know, down here with NYU and the James Beard House and you guys. And, you know, it's been it's, this is just the beginning of the whirlwind. We still have two weeks of this tour. So. <laughs> yeah, more, more than two. <laughs> yeah, we've got a lot, lot to look forward to. Yeah. But, you know, putting together the dinner itself was really fun because it put us in the mindset of like reaching out to some of our networks and growers in this area to try to find vendors. Because part of our business model is that we, um, you know, we try to purchase from indigenous vendors first off anyways Mm -hmm. of the regions. And we just really want to show regional indigenous foods like we don't want to fusionize in it. So we're not trying to do like wild rice with salmon and chilies and papa all on one Mm -hmm. plate, which would be cool. But, you know, we're just showcasing like each area has its own, you know, unique Mm -hmm. stuff like there's staples, there's fruits there's wild gingers wild onions wild garlics it's, you know mm-hmm. we're on the coast here so all that coastal seafood all the seaweeds and yeah. you know bivalves and mussels and whatever's out there like there's so much cool stuff to utilize you know, no matter where you are and this just happens to be a super cool area but we think they all are you know right. we're looking at north right. america as a whole and we just see all yeah. this awesome diversity and you know it's insane that you know all of indian country gets labeled under fry bread as like the main food for native american mm-hmm. people or and we just have so much you know just as americans we could do so much better with identifying ourselves yeah, with our own regions absolutely. through our foods you know there's no reason all of canada should be identified with poutine right yeah and and <laughs> that would be fairly limiting <laughs> oh there are probably some folks that identify sorry canada well, uh, i mean potato a, yeah. beef and cheese like nothing that's even indigenous to that whole country right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah yeah silly that's that's pretty amazing is your tour going to also go into canada and mexico we would really love for that to happen. Mm. On this first leg, we're hitting um, the Northeast, and uh, then we're going to be going out to the West Coast mm-hmm. later in um, maybe late winter, early spring. 
Um, and then we would love to go down into Mexico and up into Canada too. Yeah, but we might be doing a, a little pop-up dinner in December when we're just going to take a break and jump down to the beach in San Pancho and try to re- cool. relax. That sounds Because we have some too. friends down there and mm-hmm. be fun to just throw together a cool indigenous food flavor of that area, you know, just for fun. The first I heard of that was just today, which is very exciting <laughs> to me. Oh. I thought you meant just now. Yeah. <laughs> my, brain, my brain works like that. Yeah. <laughs> December is actually pretty soon. Yeah. Um, you got to yeah. build that into your tour and then that's the reward at the end. And when you're on the beach. That's the carrot on the end of the stick. Yeah. 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 We're we're almost out of time, but maybe um, we can can leave our audience with, um, aside from picking up your amazing book, maybe just some talk. Let's talk a little bit about, aside from like shopping from far, you know, from farmers, aside from, you know, trying to eat seasonally, like what, what are some things that we can do you know, when we're shopping and we're cooking, or how can we think about utilizing indigenous foods more, really to our benefit, obviously like the benefit of our taste buds, but also supporting that, you know, those those systems and those growers. Yeah. In a respectful, engaging, and engaged kind of way. Yeah, of for course. sure. Because I mean, you know, it's, it's important for people, I think, to think about the food system that's around them. Um, and there's a lot of foods that people are growing that are indigenous to these regions, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there's a lot of people interested in foraging and stuff like that. And we just teach about sustainable foraging, about not decimating mm-hmm. everything when you're out foraging. Like ramps is an easy example because people like to just pull up the whole ramp. And then when you pull up the roots, there's nothing left. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't regrow from nothing. Like, But mm-hmm. if you leave roots in the ground, then those bulbs will split and grow mm-hmm. more. So we've lost so much just wild food because people don't mm-hmm. know how to do yeah. it properly, right? But, you know, it's just learning some of that stuff. And, you know, we're just trying to put educational material out there for people to think about it and mm-hmm. start to, you know, think just open up their mind a little bit about the beauty of the natural world Mm -hmm. that's around them and you know these foods these wild foods and domesticated foods that have been keeping communities alive for thousands of years Mm -hmm. and celebrating a lot of these heirloom grains like we had with all those cool seeds from the corns and beans and squash and stuff like that so there's just so much cool stuff out there and there are groups out there even around New York and it was you know we were totally able to pull off an indigenous tasting of Manhattan even though there's barely anything you know natural left (laughs) in Manhattan as far as the indigenous pieces go. Mm-hmm. Also beyond steps, what's a way to start preparing our minds to decolonize ourselves? <laughs> I mean, that's obviously not something that can be done in a day or in a week. And uh, thank you so much for doing this work and putting forth this work that, as you described so eloquently, takes lifetimes and you acknowledge that in your foundation. Right. Well, thank you guys. I mean, did you? Oh yeah. Sorry. How, can, so yeah. How, how, how do we, we do decolonize ourselves? Yes. Yes. How, yes. Give us in our thinking about food. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sorry, I got no. carried away. Um, you know, for us, it was really just imagining what was there before. Mm-hmm. Like, what were people mm-hmm. eating before they were influenced by another culture, and looking at that. So it was that removal. So even just like looking at, say, Mexican food. You know, mm-hmm. if you remove European ingredients, you remove dairy, you remove beef, pork, chicken, mm-hmm. even remove cilantro that was added later, and things like that. You still have a lot of cool stuff to play with Mm -hmm. so it's just thinking in those terms like what was really here before and how are people surviving and what kind of things can we do with that and you know it's not that you know we're telling people to just start to opening up 
Native American restaurants everywhere because we don't want people to get into cultural appropriation or anything. Oh, no, we don't. But people should celebrate the foods that are there. Like, if they want to, you know, celebrate these indigenous flavors, then do so. You don't have to call yourself a Native American restaurant if you're going to do that. But just understand, like, there's so much lessons to learn all around us. And just open up your eyes. Don't just look out the window and see a bunch of weeds. Like, take the time to learn the plants and the names Mm -hmm. and, you know, what they have to offer through food and medicine and crafts and whatever. Like, there's so much vibrancy around us, you know, and plants. So plants have been our favorites. That's what we've been really looking at. And that's what's really helped us along this journey is really getting a deeper understanding of Native American agriculture and and, and the ethnobotany side of things mm. and really just trying to see that larger picture of it all. I like the, the, uh, the botany bookend of the show. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank um, you guys. Thank you. And how can people find you on social media and elsewhere? Dana? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Sue, if you just go to sue-chef.com, S-I-O-U-X-chef.com, all of our social media is listed right on our website. Yeah, and you can find natives.org, which is N-A-T-I-F-S.org, and we have a whole bunch of stuff, so we always record all of our adventures on social media, so we're bouncing all over the place, and there's lots of fun food photos and things like that. Hopefully you can see a in-booth selfie here yeah, in the back yeah. of Roberta's. Definitely. Absolutely. If you're listening while you're walking or biking or in your car to the show, we can visit our show page at heritageradionetwork.org and all the information from this show will be up there under recommended reading and you can um, access all of the handles there as well and learn more. And if you want to read something in hard copy, there's a beautiful book out called The Sous Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, uh, hopefully in its third printing by the time you hear this. All right. (laughs) Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Dana. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Recommended reading is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.